<clears throat> well, hello there. This is Milena, and welcome to another episode of Scientific Mavericks Podcast, where it is my pleasure to introduce an incredibly talented team of thought leaders and innovators who are at the forefront of reinventing the way retail companies and channels make business decisions today. Hybris mantra is data has a better idea, and since its inception in 2015, Hybris introduced world's first AI solutions leveraging retail genome, its proprietary algorithm networks and prescriptive analytics with the goal to automate business decisions and help retail companies increase their returns on retail space investment. Hybris spun out of Data61 and is backed by the Coca-Cola company. Number 204 in the Deloitte 2018 Asia-Pacific Technology Fast 500 ranking, Hyvery has been repeatedly recognized as an Australian startup to watch for, and last year, Export Council of Australia awarded Hyvery for its contributions to the international trade and New South Wales economy. It is my great pleasure to introduce you to today's guest, who is tuning in all the way from Tokyo, Ben Henschke. Ben is a technical lead for several Hyvery projects with large beverage companies in Japan and China, and has been a part of this team since its founding in 2015. In December 2017, Ben transferred to Japan to set up the office and build the technical team for Hyvery's Japanese subsidiary. Ben develops machine learning and optimization algorithms that underlie Hyvery's flagship product, Bending Analytics. Ben also manages the localization of Hyvery software for the Japanese and Chinese markets. Aside from his work at Hyvery, Ben has also worked as a software engineer in a natural language processing company and as a Japanese English translator. So, without further ado, Ben, welcome and thanks so much for joining. No worries, thanks a lot. So, Ben, I know that you're fluent in Japanese. You have studied at Osaka University and have also worked as a freelance Japanese English translator for two years. I'd love to hear how you have developed your interest for the Japanese culture and decided to fully immerse yourself in it. Well, I mean, I, I get by in Japanese. I wouldn't, I'm not perfect, but I started learning Japanese when I was about seven, I think. At my primary school, every student had to learn Japanese. I was quite lucky in that respect because I don't think that's very common. I mean, at the time, it wasn't very common. But since I was about seven, all the way through primary school, I learned Japanese. And I think the thing that got me particularly involved in, in Japanese was that we always seemed to have Japanese student teachers staying at our house when I was younger. So we would host them and that helped get me exposed to Japanese culture, like Japanese food I always ate when I was younger and a bit of language, although by the end of primary school, I didn't get too far into it. But the high school I went to also offered Japanese. So I studied there and then again at university. By the time I got to the end of university, I, I studied in Osaka for a year. So I got a lot of practice there and studied very hard. But then um, after after I graduated, I didn't really uh, use Japanese for a few years until the opportunity at Highbury came up. So in the last few years, I've been trying to work very hard to get uh, get it all coming back in. It's, uh, it's getting there, but it's, it's still a bit of a challenge. So when you went to the university, was it the first in-person encounter with Japan for you? Uh, no, I actually went over once in high school for a few weeks. So we had a sister school and a f maybe about 20 students went over there on a trip to, to visit our sister school, which is in Kyushu in the southwest of Japan. And that was 
that was really amazing. I was only 15, so I didn't really understand the, I guess, the gravity of the difference between Japan and, and Australia at the time because I was sort of treated very, very kindly by my, my host family. I didn't really see everything that goes on here. So we just sort of went to school with the students and then observed their classes, didn't understand anything that was going on. <laughs> and the rest of the time was a bit of tourism, which was fun. So prior to setting up office in Japan, you were located in Sydney office. Could you provide some context around the decision to set up a subsidiary in Japan for Hivery? Yeah, sure. So I, I wasn't in, involved in the entire process. Hideaki is the country manager here, and he, he took the lead on that. But I guess the, the thinking behind it was that we have a few clients over here. We've been doing work with Hivery in Japan for about probably two and a half years now and got to the point where we were gaining enough traction with those customers that in order to really, I guess, show our commitment to Japan and make them more comfortable dealing with this, uh, you know, this relatively small Australian company, you know, we, we should set up a subsidiary in Japan. So that was a pretty drawn out process. I, I think it, t- it takes a little, little while to get set up properly, but then once we are, then, you know, now we're, we're a proper Japanese entity and we can, hire over here and make contracts with Japanese companies. So it makes it, it really makes it a lot easier to do business over here. And uh, it's, that's pretty rare, I think, for Australian companies to have done that. So I think we're, we're lucky to be one of the, the very few Australian startups who have then set up a Japanese entity over here. You moved to Japan about two years ago, and correct me if I'm wrong, from your personal standpoint, what were some cultural differences you have experienced when you moved from Australia to Tokyo? Um, so I, I've moved to Japan about six months ago. I've been working exclusively on Japanese projects at Hivery for about two years. Um, yeah, so when I moved over here about six months ago, I guess I was exposed to the working culture, which I hadn't really been before. Harvey's still an Australian company in the cultural way, I think, but all of our clients are Japanese. So I got to see, I guess, how meetings are run in Japan, which is different from Australia. I think there's probably a lot of, uh, a lot more silence and, and sort of quiet thinking that goes on during meetings. Um, so that was something I took a bit of getting used to because our natural reaction is always, I guess, our meaning Australians is always to the empty space because it's uncomfortable but in over here it's completely natural to have a long silence in a meeting it's not necessarily a bad thing i'd say yeah the, the work culture was the main difference i've um, i've noticed over here because the other cultural differences i guess from a more general sense i'd been exposed to already uh, at university any piece of advice you would give to someone on a personal level to help prepare for a transition like this? Could be a general recommendation or Japan-specific that is related to moving from one culture to another. Uh, I think the it's not specific to Japan, but I think any time I've traveled overseas to a country where English is not the main language, I've always tried to learn at least a little bit of the language. And I think that helps a massive amount, like if you can read menus in a restaurant or, you know, know where you are. In, in Japan, there's a lot of English on signs in train stations, for example, but in other places there might not be. So at least the sort of survival phrases and learning as many of those as you can is really helpful. And people, uh, especially I think in, in Japan, you'll get praised a lot just 
for saying something really simple in Japanese if people really appreciate it. <laughs> so, yeah, is, I guess learning as much of the language as you can is, is a really useful thing to do when you're either moving or just traveling over to another country. Yeah, right now I'm in Bali and um, I have my daily Indonesian Bahasa lessons. Oh, wow. How are they going? Um, actually, it's pretty easy because my native tongue is Russian. So a lot of sounds are really not necessarily similar, but very easy to mimic. I would also say that when moving from one place to another, from my personal standpoint, it always hits me after three weeks when I realize how different it is. Of course, there's culture shock in the first place, but then just being patient with a lot of differences and understanding that you do not necessarily have to perhaps change your own way of thinking, mm -hmm. but just be understanding of another culture. I think this is sort of the gap that usually happens when mm -hmm. you move from one country to another and expect everything to be the same. But in the process, you also change as a person mm -hmm. <laughs> and become more patient, especially in Bali. <laughs> Who would have thought that Russian and Indonesian would have similar sort of pronunciation, I guess, of such different countries, I guess, but also Japanese and Italian apparently have similar sort of pronunciation. So it's quite easy for Italians to pronounce Japanese. Oh, interesting. Um, knowing no Italian, I can't confirm that. But <laughs> All right. So... Now, from the perspective of bringing a young Australian startup into Japan, what were the cultural differences in the business context besides the silence in the in the conference room? <laughs> <laughs> I re yeah, I realized that that wasn't the, the only thing. That I think this probably goes back to something that you talked about just before when you were saying that you learn to sort of change your your own way of thinking to fit in with the the country that you're moving to. So Hideaki is um, the, the country manager. He's Japanese, but he was brought up in Australia. And he said that when he moved over here, he was working for an Australian company, I, th I think. And he had to, the whole cross-border thing. So he had Japanese clients here and an Australian company and with differing expectations and learning to manage those expectations that can be a challenge. I think for us, we're a very small company and we're dealing with our customers are very, very large traditional Japanese companies. So they're used to things happening very quick, quickly, but also correctly, which sort of, I guess the startup way of thinking is you get something out there as quickly as you can and then you get feedback. Even if it's a bit buggy, it's fine as long as you get the user to see it. That works to some extent in Japan, but also I guess the expectation of correctness the first time is also something that's difficult for a startup to, to, to come around to. So we're sort of happy to make mistakes all the time um, as, as Hivery, but then our, our customers would prefer that we don't make mistakes. <laughs> so we're, we're sort of learning to try to manage the expectation of speed and correctness. But also our customers are learning that as well. And at the beginning, they possibly had different expectations. We try to experiment as much as we can and get feedback, but their expectation would be that it would be done properly the first time and they wouldn't have to provide feedback. But then when some of those clients came over to Australia, they mentioned at the end of their trip, actually, I think I'm starting to learn how the sort of the Australian companies work and the different pace of life over here, I guess. So we learn from the companies we deal with here, but then to some extent, they're learning about how Australian companies work and how we mm -hmm. try to experiment as much as we can. And sometimes, you know, sometimes things don't work perfectly the first time but then that's that's fine because that's a learning experience and we improve based on that 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, just based on my personal heritage of being Russian, giving feedback might sometimes come across as attacking someone. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think when I was young, I wasn't necessarily taught how to give feedback. But when I moved to England and then US and other places, giving feedback was just a normal part of the process. And learning how to do that without attacking the person and also making them feel like they're motivated is definitely a skill to build and I'm still working on it. So that was an interesting mention. <laughs> What was the hardest obstacle to overcome when Hyvory came to Japan? I think at the beginning when when Hyvory first came to Japan, uh, I think the the major obstacle we faced was that companies wanted to see results that had already been proven. And we had some that had been proven overseas, but then we were working mostly with vending machines at the time. And vending machines are huge in Japan. There's a long history of innovation in Japan. So results that we had from overseas didn't necessarily convince customers over here that they would be applicable to Japan. So we needed to really prove the effectiveness of our software in the Japanese market and overcoming that barrier is like, okay, you've, you've done well overseas, but can you do well in Japan? I think that was quite a bit of a barrier to overcome and we're, we're slowly making progress on that uh, now. What were some of the strategies that you used to prove that the concept that worked in Australia will work in another country? I think we probably went about it in a similar way to what we did in Australia initially when, when Hyvory first started. We did a small-scale experiment with Coca-Cola Amatil, and then based on the result of that, we, had, we were able to prove that the software works and then justify expanding it out to broader scale in Australia and then ultimately overseas. I th- think we probably did something similar over here because we had a customer who was willing to do a very small scale experiment with us at the beginning and that so in order to to do that experiment we built out some features in the the tool that we had like dealing with hot and cold products for example and then based on the results of that we could show to that customer but also others in Japan here we have a tool that works in Japan and we have results that show that that this software works in Japan. So it made the rest of the journey much easier, I guess, much smoother because we had some proven results to, to show to other people. Was there any part that was easier to adjust or not as difficult than you initially expected? Yeah, I, I won't say not difficult because it's still very difficult, but speaking Japanese in meetings, I think the people that in, in the meetings were much more forgiving of my <laughs> mistakes than I expected. There's a lot of a lot of times when, uh, you know, I don't know what I want to say and I sort of make it up as I'm going and make a lot of mistakes, but they just sort of list, listen intently and even if I'm not really making much sense, they're like, oh, yeah, I think I might know what he's saying. Um, so <laughs> people <laughs> much more, um, yeah, much more forgiving than I expected. I was thinking that, I'd sort of just get cut off and they're like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Uh, but no, people have been very, very kind over here. So I've been able to, I guess, build my confidence for in speaking in Japanese in meetings more than I thought I would be able to when I first moved. Mm-hmm. Ben, based on your experience at Hybri, what would you say is the most important aspect or attribute a company should have before internationalizing? 
make sure you have results to show when you try to, to sell into a different country. I think if we had have come to Japan and said, you know, we've got a great idea for some software. Do you want to do an experiment with us? Then we would not have gotten, <laughs> we were, they would have been pretty short meetings. But at, we had results overseas, at least, where we could show that we've had traction and been making good progress. And then thankfully, we we're willing to find some, some customers who are willing to take a bit of a chance on us. But getting over that initial meeting with a, a new client requires, I think, some results. Mm-hmm. And also probably choosing an attractive market where there is product market fit. Because if in Japan, the beverage industry and the vending industry were not so prominent, probably Hyvery's product would not necessarily be a good fit for the market. Yes, that's a very, very good point. I don't think we would have come to Japan as early as we did if there wasn't such a, a big market here for our product. Because, I mean, Japan has a lot of, I mean, there's a language language barrier. Only currently, I think, two of our staff can speak Japanese. So it makes it um, more difficult to deal with Japan. But I guess the, um, the market over here is so large for a product like ours um, that it makes it worth it overall. So, um, yeah, and if, if there wasn't that same, I guess, return on investment in in the future, then it probably would be make more sense to go to, say, Europe or some, somewhere like that uh, rather than Japan. Thank you so much for taking the time today. No worries. Thanks a lot. Stay tuned. And till the next time, everyone.